This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Programming for the Gender and Women's Studies, um, and I want to welcome you to our keynote address for the 24th Annual Elizabeth Cady Stanton Student Research Conference. Um, I hope that you, a lot of you have been able to attend the student-focused um, events um, panels and the performances that were started at one o'clock today, because that's really what this conference is all about. Unfortunately, I couldn't make it to any of them, but every report I've heard has been really terrific. So it's always um, exciting and I don't know rejuvenating to remember, you know, to be to sort of recognize the high level of gender-informed intellectual discourse that's taking place in our classroom. So. It's, it's a really inspiring um, day, I think, for all of us. Um, I also just want to take this opportunity to plug our upcoming events. Um, we have two events in April, which um, is uh, Sexual Assault Awareness Month, and both of our events focus on sexual assault. Um, the first is a panel on sexual assault on college campuses, and that's at 6 o'clock on Thursday, April 11th um, in the Radnor St. David's room. And we're gonna have two lawyers um, who've worked on legislation um, helping universities deal with um, sexual assault complaints. We're gonna have Elisa Lopez from um, Campus Security. And we have a student from GC Nova, a student group, uh, Marciano Lopez. So it should be a really interesting, also um, Kimberly Hill from the Office of Health Promotions. So we have a bunch of different points of view. Um, I hope you'll come. I think it's a really important issue um, that affects all of us. So I, I really strongly encourage you to come. The second is a screening of a documentary film called The Invisible War, which is about sexual assault in the military, which, if you, which has been in the news these days. And we have um, two really interesting speakers to follow up the film with a conversation. One is a law professor, Elizabeth Hillman, who has testified at um, hearings about sexual assault in the military. And then we have um, Colonel Alan Metzler, and he is the Deputy Director, Department of Defense Sexual Assault Prevention and Response Office. So it should be a, another really um, great event. That We're co-sponsoring that with the law school. So um, this is the first time we're going to have a GWS event that's Actually, in the law school, it's in room 201 at the law school on April 18th, um, and that's a Thursday, and that's at 4:45. So I hope it's on our poster. We'll advertise both these events. I hope you'll you'll come to both of them. I think they're really both addressing really important um, issues that we should all be thinking and talking about. Um, okay, so now I'm going to um, be done with that part, and now I just want to thank a whole bunch of people. So I hope you'll bear with me. Um, I know there will be time to thank people at the ECS banquet, but I'm not sure everybody here will be there, so I want to have the opportunity to thank people here as well. Um, the, the first group of people I have to thank is the, um, the Elizabeth Cady Stanton Committee from our Gender and Women's Studies Steering Committee, and that's the chair is Sherry Bowen, um, Alice Daly, Ellen Bonds, and Linda Coppell all worked really hard, and I just wonder if we could give them a round for making this day happen and making it possible. Um, in addition to essential people for making, well, I also want to take an opportunity to thank um, Shauna McDonald, who helped with the performances. Um, she's in the communication department, and while she's very supportive of gender and women's studies, she's actually not on the steering committee. 
So it was terrific that she helped out with that. Um, also, uh, my graduate assistant, Teddy Hermes, and our administrative assistant, Joyce Harden, were, have been working nonstop for the last three weeks, and I wonder if we could give them a round of applause as well. None of it would have happened without um, their work and efforts. Um, so, um, just a few other people I want to thank, and that includes my co-director, Catherine Carrison, um, and all the members of the Gender and Women's Studies, Studies Steering Committee for reading our essays and for um, moderating the panels today. Um, and I think, I also want to thank our co-sponsors, um, the History Department and Africana Studies. Um, so this keynote address is part of a semester-long celebration of the 150th anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation. And I want to thank Crystal Lucky, Ellen Bonds, and Judy Giesberg for their work on this amazing series of events that we're um, participating in. And I'm done with all of that rigmarole, and I'm going to just turn the um, podium over to Judy Giesberg, Associate Professor of History, um, and she's going to introduce our speaker. Thank you. Service. 
Having no authority to free the slaves in the states in rebellion, the emancipation opened, the proclamation opened the door for male slaves to do what many of them were already doing, which is to, to desert their plantations, escape to Union lines, so to sign up for the army. And of course, 180,000 or so of these men did just that. But what of their wives, mothers, sisters, and children that they had left behind? Of course, hundreds of thousands of these folks had already made their way across Union lines too, but once they got there, uh, their path there remained unclear. <coughs> Gender influenced the way emancipation policy was made at the federal, state, and local level, and gender shaped the paths individuals, slaves, took to freedom. Uh, what the Emancipation Proclamation made clear for men did not do so for women. And few people uh, have made this point clearer uh, than our guest speaker here tonight. Professor, professor Stephanie McCurry holds the, the Christopher H. Brown Distinguished Professor of History um, Chair at the University of Pennsylvania, Department of History. The title of Dr. McCurry's talk this afternoon is A Tale of a Soldier's Wife, War, Gender, and <coughs> um, uh, Dr. McCurry received her PhD from the State University of New York at Binghamton. Before coming to the University of Pennsylvania in 2003, she held positions at the University of California, San Diego, and Northwestern. Professor McCurry is widely published in the field of Civil War history and is a, in, is a recognized authority in particular on how race and gender shaped the experience of politics in the antebellum and Civil War South. Dr. McCurry's first book, Masters of Small World, Yeoman Households, Gender Relations, and the Political Culture of the Antebellum South Carolina Low Country was published in 1995. In it, Dr. McCurry explained how gender allowed yeoman farmers who owned few slaves to go to war with planters who owned many because they shared a definition of manhood. Masters of Small Worlds won five prestigious awards, including the John Hope Franklin Prize of American Studies, the American Studies Association, the Charles Sidnor Prize of the Southern Historical Association, the Willie Lee Rose Prize of the Southern Association of Women's Historians, and the Best Book Prize of the South Carolina Historical Association. Dr. McCurry's second book, Confederate Reckoning, Power and Politics in the Civil War South, published in 2010, was awarded the Frederick Douglass Book Prize from Yale University's Gilder Lehrman Center, the Avery O. Craven Award and the Merle Purdy Award from the Organization of American Historians, and the Willie Lee Rose Prize for Southern Association from Southern Association uh, for Women's Historians. And Confederate Reckoning was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in History. In the book, Dr. McCurry traces the rise and fall of, in her words, a modern pro-slavery and anti-democratic state dedicated to the proposition that all men were not created equal. Professor McCurry shows convincingly that built on a notion of democratic consent, the Confederate state was brought down by those from whom it did not seek consent, that is, poor white women and slaves. If you read one book on the Civil War in this year or any other year, this should be your book. We are delighted to have Stephanie McCurry with us. Please join me in welcoming her. Good afternoon, everybody. <clears throat> I'd like to thank 
Lisa Sewell and Judy Giesberg and other members of the conference planning who thought to invite me here and to say how wonderful it is to finally see Judy Giesberg on her home territory. We're used to collaborating and uh, snatching conversation together either in Starbucks and Ardmore or in far-flung parts of the uh, conference circuit. So it's lovely to be here today. It's quite a picture, huh? From the Library of Congress collection. There's an important pattern in the history of slave emancipation in the Western Hemisphere, one that is insufficiently specified in the literature, but I think of considerable significance for the history of slave and freed women, and that is the intimate association of war and emancipation in the modern period. From the American War of Independence, to which the first or so-called first US emancipation was tied, to the last Brazilian surrender of slavery in the aftermath of the Paraguayan War, to virtually everything in between, Saint-Domingue, the Spanish-American Wars of Independence, the US Civil War, the Ten Years' War in Cuba, in every major case except the British colonies, slaves fought for and won their independence in the context of war. It was in war that slave men became particular objects of state interest. Able-bodied men of military age, as the phrase always went, became the focus of intense competition between warring states for their political loyalty and military service. In this respect, the American Civil War was not unique. In those two warring states, the US and the Confederate States, military service and emancipation were temporally and causationally linked, as manhood and citizenship would be when they came uh, followed with Union victory. But however striking the pattern of war and emancipation, historians have not accorded it much significance. And that matters, not least because it's the starting point from which we might reconstruct the hidden history of gender and emancipation, or to put it in a more straightforward way, the particular struggles of enslaved women to claim a status as free people in the context of war. To focus on war is to isolate for purposes of analysis a particular relationship between military service and the gender patterns of emancipation, patterns fundamental, emphatically not incidental, to the way the process unfolded in the United States as in so many other times and places. What, we might ask, are the implications for women of an emancipation accomplished during war? It is something of a pressing question, at least in the United States, given that we now so commonly think of slaves, a gender neutral term, as earning emancipation by military service, and where we so commonly posit the figure of the black soldier as emblematic of the entire process. The idea that emancipation must be understood as a process, protracted, regionally uneven, and highly contingent, this is now well understood. But the elemental contingency of a process drawn out over five years of war was for enslaved men and women not only a matter of administrative reluctance, regional circumstance, proximity to Union troops, or any other number of random circumstances as the, as the literature suggests, but everywhere also a circumstance of gender itself. For where military service emerged as the critical route to emancipation, as it did in the United States, enslaved men's and women's opportunities to lay claim to the status of free people and the means by which they could do so differed fundamentally, such that we might think of them as taking particular gendered routes to emancipation and to the citizenship it allegedly secured. 
And this paper begins to trace out those roots and their gender patterns. And it does so by highlighting one crucial but little noticed pattern in the history of emancipation across the hemisphere, the repeated recourse to marriage as an organizing principle of state-sponsored emancipation. In the United States, where the history of emancipation is inseparable from that of the Civil War and military service, marriage runs through military emancipation policy on a parallel but unexamined, we might call it the distaff line. Men were supposed to take the martial route to emancipation, women, apparently, the marital one. Along with the black soldier came the black soldier's wife. In this paper, I try to trace out the importance of marriage and emancipation policies and offer the tale of the black soldier's wife as one real-life case of the general problem of women, gender, and emancipation. If the soldier's wife initially emerged as an instrumental figure in union policy, the implications for real women were nonetheless profound. It is not only that emancipation policy construed women's freedom in relationship to marriage and their husband's right, delivered it at second hand, you might say, with lasting consequences for women's citizenship, it also turned on a legal fiction of slave marriage that itself imposed enormous barriers to the women attempting to lay claim to the identity of the soldier's wife and the rights, including freedom, that went with it. The tale of the soldier's wife doesn't start in the American South during the Civil War. Uh, to tell it, you actually have to begin with the foundational case of emancipation in war, Saint-Domingue, where slave emancipation emerged as French Republican policy in the context of a war that consumed the island and the Caribbean for more than 15 years. The outlines of, of much subsequent history of gender and emancipation emerged there. As early as 1790, some parties in the revolutionary struggle in Saint-Domingue had moved to arm and train their own slaves, especially the free-colored colonists, the Jean de Couleur, emboldened in their demands for equal citizenship by events in Paris. But the real competition for slave soldiers was set in motion in 1791 by the massive self-arming of slaves in the north of the island in the historic revolt of enslaved men and women against the planters, slavery, and the French Republican state still intent on preserving it. By the end of 1791, after that revolt, black leaders built substantial slave armies that grew in numbers by alliance with already existing maroon bands. And from that position of strength, self-proclaimed black generals proceeded to negotiate the terms of their service with the contending European powers. The Spanish, who were invading from the other side of the island, the French Republican forces scrambling to hold the island, and after 1793, the English, who invaded as well. In the early years of the Haitian Revolution, universal emancipation was an unthinkable goal. Liberty at issue only in the most militarily delimited way, available only to men directly under arms, and not even to all of them. In early negotiations with the French Republican commissioners, for example, the black generals demanded freedom for themselves and 400 of their top followers. The deal would have obligated them to force the remainder of their own insurgents, men and women both presumably, back into plantation slavery. And even that limited deal was refused. As much as two years after this insurrection, there were massive numbers of slave men under arms, but many more women uh, 
I'm sorry, but many more men and women still on the plantations, in maroon bands in the hills or in the British occupied zone, and the only new route to emancipation, military service, was one that could only be taken by men. It was entirely closed to women. In this highly militarized context, the terms on which slave women, including insurgent ones, would be able to negotiate freedom was announced. In 1793, Legere Felicité Santonax, one of the civil commissioners sent by the French Republic, facing a coup by the governor general of the colony, made a desperate bid for the loyalty and military service of the mass of slave men, offering liberty to all slave men who would fight for the Republic. And when the timely arrival of reinforcements came in the form of two black generals, Santonax was emboldened and he extended the offer, issuing a proclamation in Creole and French promising freedom, quote, to the women folk of black warriors as long as they were prepared to go through a Republican marriage ceremony. Although barely mentioned in the historical literature, this emancipation policy was, as one historian has pointed out, a critical reflection of the centrality of marriage and patriarchal authority in French Republican policy, as it would be 50 years later in the American Civil War. Indeed, as she notes, because owners were to be compensated for slave soldiers freed, the emancipation of women, quote, took the form of a purchase and indemnity that transferred women's slaves from the hands of their masters to those of their husbands through the intervention of the Republic. The difficulties of access to that provision, not least because slave women did not possess the right to enter contracts, including contracts of marriage, and notaries often refused to uh, register their marriages, uh, this was one, only one of the limitations of the policy, although it was one that would come up again in the United States. Not only did whites and colored men across the political spectrum thus construct the slaves in insurrection as male, they also forged a new model of the Republican citizen soldier that would long constrain the meanings of freedom for women. For French radicals, including Santanax, emancipation was clearly a principled act, but it was one shaped irreducibly by war. And as such, it touched men directly and women only indirectly by virtue of their marriage to the Republic's soldiers. So when Toussaint Louverture took his army over to the French following the decree, he, he preceded it with a call to his, quote, brothers to unite with him in the fight for liberty and equality in Saint-Domingue. Born in war, it could sometimes seem as if the very nation itself was male. And the differences were not short-lived. The gendering of freedom was no abstraction. In Haiti, the militarization of society meant that for years, men were siphoned off to the army and women forcibly returned to the plantations as part of the colonial and later national project of, of resurrecting the plantation sector and the export economy. It comes then as a sharp reminder that women have an alternative conception of citizenship when in 1796, women workers went on strike during the harvest until promised equal pay. Whatever else it suggests, I'm sorry, whatever else it means, it suggests the limits of a state view of women as recipients of freedom through marriage, as dependent parties or minors in the historic project of slave emancipation. When, more than half a century later, American slaves made their bid for emancipation in the context of another war, 
many of the same conditions of Republican freedom pertained. In the United States, despite the Emancipation Proclamation, the process by which slaves reached freedom was dangerous, uncertain, protracted, and as in Haiti, had to be negotiated differently by men and women. For in the US Civil War, slaves' insurrection against both slavery and the Confederate state, initially within the South, alerted Union military men to the, this is, I just wanted to show you this picture again, it's the same picture. Um, Uh, when more that when they uh, let's see here in the U.S. Civil War, slaves' insurrection against both slavery and the Confederate state, communities like this turning against their masters on southern plantations before they ever even had contact with the Union Army, um, it was exactly the the rising of people uh, against their masters that alerted Union military officials. Uh, to the potential utility of black men's labor, loyalty, and eventually military service, and put emancipation on the agenda, as Lincoln would put it in his economical way in the Emancipation Proclamation as, quote, a fit and necessary war measure. In that respect, the text of the great document inscribed the process that had made it possible. The slave insurgency on the plantations of the Confederate South was clearly the work of men and women both, you can find that out in one second if you read the plantation records, not if you read uh, Union Army records, they're only interested in the men, but if you read the plantation records, you can see the insurgency of the women. But as in Saint-Domingue, the Union government and Army's instrumental interest in military-age men among them immediately construed, quote, the slaves of persons engaged in rebellion as if they were all male. So if you look at this picture of slaves fording the Rappahannock River trying to flee to Union lines, you will see it's men, women, children, grandfathers, grandmothers, infants. This is not a military age population. This is a people in flight. And in Virginia, it probably took them weeks to collect up those members of their family from the way they were dispersed across the uh, farm and plantation landscape. Um, <clears throat> when large numbers started to make it into Union lines, the women fugitives among them immediately emerged as a problem in policy terms. The implications for women were lived in historical time and have lingering effect even in the most progressive accounts of slave emancipation written in our own time. Three particular moments in the tangled course of emancipation in the American Civil War elucidate the scale of the argument. The formulation of contraband policy at Fort Monroe, Virginia at the beginning of the war in May 1861. The federal policy of enlisting black soldiers that Judy referred to that uh, took official form first in the Militia Act and which was implemented in the Union-occupied Mississippi Valley starting in 1862. And the third case is the belated arrangement to recruit and emancipate slaves in the Union border states, uh, especially Kentucky, areas exempt from the Emancipation Proclamation. And in the fact that the Confederate government adopted similar provisions in its desperate move to enlist slaves in the second half of the war, I think is the stunning reducto ad absurdum case that proves the rule. In other words, marriage was at the heart of Confederate military policy as well. In every case, the soldier's wife emerges as the identity of slave women 
privileged in military emancipation policy. This is another uh, illustration of the slaves coming into the lines, uh, in this case, in North Carolina. Um, a picture of uh, who the Army wants of all those people who came across the line, black Teamsters. Um, Union General Men uh, Benjamin Butler had no sooner taken command at Fort Monroe, a federal fort in coastal Virginia, when slaves began to deliver themselves up, as he put it, to his pickets, first three men, then three days later a group, a squad he called it, bringing, quote, their women and children. The patriarchal construction is inherent in the grammar. The contraband policy Butler forged justified holding those slaves on the grounds that it deprived the Confederate government of the military use of their labor in support of the rebellion. So slaves were contraband of war. Uh, uh, goods that the Confederacy might use, uh, legitimately seized uh, in the context of war. From the outset, federal policy focused on precisely those military-age males uh, who had been impressed by Confederate authorities to build batteries and other fortifications. But the gender problematic of that policy, quote, the most difficult with which we have had to deal, as one official put it, was immediately apparent. The contraband policy provided no rationale for holding women and children. As a military question, and a question of humanity, Butler wrote his superior officer, can I receive the services of a father and not take the mother and the children? Remember, what they really want is the Teamsters. They don't really want all these women and children. Um, unwanted, still the women and children came uh, through the lines. As late as March 1863, one federal commander in the Mississippi Valley complained about the thousands of useless Negroes within his command, quote, two-thirds to three-fourths of whom are women and children, incapable of army labor, a weight and encumbrance. And if you read the federal records, it's littered with terms like of no public use. Uh, in other words, there's a very instrumental attitude towards uh, slaves coming into the lines what can we do with them? How can they help our cause? If the problem of women in contraband policy emerged first at Fort Monroe, so too did the solution, sorry, the outlines of the solution resorted to repeatedly throughout the war to transform women fugitives into contraband's wives. Edward Pierce, a young Boston attorney, publicly vindicated the policy arrived at in Virginia explaining to the Atlantic Monthly Magazine in November 61 that the American public ought to embrace the contrabands as part of the American people. Each Negro, he explained, who served the cause of union had vindicated beyond all future question for himself, his wife, and their issue a title to citizenship and had become heir to all the immunities of the Declaration of Independence and Constitution of the United States. From the earliest moments of the war, advocates of slave emancipation imagined the contraband as male and the women refugees as their wives, proposed that male slaves would earn citizenship with service to the, to the Union and pass on its benefits to their wives and children. No matter that marriage was illegal for slaves, uh, marriage had customary but not legal standing in the South, remember slaves have no civil they do not possess this, the fundamental element of self-possession necessary to enter into a civil contract. Um, so there is no legal marriage. 
Um, so no, no matter that marriage was illegal, or more immediately, that many women, I'm sorry, a few more black sold. Actually, this one's really uh, interesting because when I started to look for images um, of black uh, soldiers and black men in military labor, so many of the images were of children. And you can see that these are, I mean, the child on the left is probably seven. Um, but they're finding, they're finding safety in camp and they're trying to stay there. Basically, it's the only zone of freedom. And their labor, I suppose, is of some use to these soldiers who don't want to do their own laundry. Um, <clears throat> uh, I, I meant to show you this, actually, when I was talking about um, the um, uh, numbers of men and women in the contraband camp. If you look at this image, you'll see that there's very few uh, men left in this picture, only male children, uh, and one uh, elderly man in the front picture. The contraband camps uh, basically become the zone of women and children. Um, <clears throat> but not all women came with a husband in tow. <clears throat> the woman, uh, so um, it's not, the problem is not simply that marriage is illegal for slaves, it's also that many of the women who made it to union lines had come on their own or as heads of families themselves. This woman appears to be uh, herself and her two children. Marriage was, uh, I'm sorry, the woman who came through 200 miles in men's clothes to Fort Monroe had no husband, or at least none with her when she arrived. But nonetheless, marriage was part of the basic template of federal emancipation policy from its earliest imaginings in the American Civil War. The recourse to marriage at Fort Monroe and everywhere else had cropped up reflected deep-seated cultural assumptions about adult women's dependency and normative status as wives. But it was also animated by a host of pressing concerns, chief among them male responsibility for dependence. Worries about self-support and the specter of massive public welfare hung over every decision about how to administer the growing population of fugitive slaves under union control. Would slave men assume responsibility for the support of their dependents? That very question opened up Pandora's box, and the problem of marriage, of slaves' marriages, was one of the first things to pop out. The problem wasn't new. Indeed, the idea of male self-possession and of slave marriage as a condition of emancipation, as evidence of male slaves' willingness to embrace subjection to the patriarchal ethos, this had been central to British emancipation schemes in the 18th century, and as we have just seen in Saint-Domingue at the end of the 18th century. In the mid-19th century United States, the willingness to embrace marriage and its attendant responsibilities was always part of the assessment of slaves' men's fittedness for freedom and citizenship. And that was why slaves' sense of the marriage relation was of such public interest during the war. It was one of the first questions asked at a congressional hearing in March 1863 by a committee on the condition of former slaves charged to make recommendations about their employment and welfare. And it was also why regularizing slave marriage was a sometime preoccupation of union occupying forces, commanders of contraband camps, missionary teachers, and army chaplains. In the South Carolina Sea Islands, uh, where occupation dated from November 1861, and the massive flight of planters off plantations like this one on Hilton Head uh, left thousands of slaves under federal jurisdiction, 
One minister took it as his chief task to get slaves to marry and backed up by the order of General Rufus Saxton require, and was backed up by the order of General Saxton requiring that, quote, Negroes having more than one wife were now obliged to make a choice. Marriage and monogamy were official federal policy. Whatever the complications, I'm sorry, I should have read you this, Negroes having more than one wife. In the original text, it's in inverted uh, commas. Whatever the complications, and they were many, as the apostrophes around wife suggests, marriage and the administration of slave women as wives was the solution to the problem of contraband women and of dependency most often reached for in federal policy. From the earliest moments of the war, when contraband first emerged as a population under union governance, policymakers immediately sought to render male slaves to the jurisdiction of the state and the army, and women slaves to the jurisdiction of marriage. That instinct, so socially ingrained it seemed natural, including unfortunately to historians in our own time, would resurface virtually everywhere the Union Army came into control of large populations of slaves. <clears throat> From its earliest formulations, Union policy touching slave property took shape as a competition with the Confederacy for control over the bodies of slave men to use for military labor. That position was formalized in the first Confiscation Act in October, I'm sorry, August 61, which promised freedom only for slave men employed by the Confederate military. That narrow calculation meant that the act provided, as historians have noted, quote, slight access to freedom for any slaves, and none, I would add, for women. As the Union moved in the summer of 1862 to embrace hard war tactics and Lincoln contemplated emancipation, the US Congress, or at least the, the part of what was left of it after secession, debated a much tougher confiscation bill that would declare, quote, forever free of their servitude, all slaves of rebel owners under the control of the US government. The same bill empowered the president to enlist men of African descent in the US Army. So it was the beginning of the enlistment of black men. In debates over the Militia Act, as it was called, the military logic of confiscation, its gendered terms and implications for women, were all rendered explicit. As senators fought over the reach of the bills, should they authorize the confiscation of slaves only of loyal, uh, I'm sorry, only of rebel owners, or should it reach uh, also to loyal owners? Should they permit enlistment? Should they award freedom only to the soldiers or to their families as well? While all of this was being debated, the US Capitol became witness to a very strange discussion about the existence and claims of the slave wife. It was not the last time such ostensibly presentist, read feminist concerns about women and gender were actually central to congressional debate over emancipation policy. Here I'm simply trying to say that those of us who are interested in gender are not simply intruding the concerns of 2013 into the debates of 1863. I think I'm going to try to show you that they were standing around in the halls of the Senate debating exactly this question in 1862. In that debate in 1862 over the Militia Act, for the first time in official policy, congressmen liter literally created the category of the black soldier's wife and in doing so opened up a route to emancipation some women would try to take. Codified into law, the black soldier's wife emerged into history. 
But the debate also sent up plenty of warning flares as senators flagged every problem involved in implementing such a policy. Where slave marriage was not legal, the bond of husband and wife had no power to dissolve the bond of master and slave or to destroy his property right in his woman's slave. Was there such a thing as a slave wife? And if there was, did Congress have the right to free her as well as her soldier husband? The entire debate was highly contentious and polarized, a bitter struggle over congressional power to confiscate, the necessity to offer freedom in exchange for service, and the reach of the law to the slaves owned by loyal men. It divided Democrats from Republicans, with border state Democrats making the roughest arguments against, but it also divided Republican advocates of hard war, like John Sherman of Ohio and Preston King of New York. Indeed, it must have come as quite a shock when at least in the mid somewhere around the midpoint of the debate, Senator Preston King of New York proposed to add the provision, one version of which survived into the final act, quote, that when any man or boy of African descent shall render military service to the, the U.S. government, he, his mother, his wife and children shall forever thereafter be free, any law or, or usage to, to the contrary notwithstanding. So they weren't just going to free the soldier, they were going to free his mother, his wife, and his children. No sooner had the black soldier been imagined, the papers weren't even issued yet, than there she was in Congress, the black soldier's wife. But that wife was a slave, as was her husband, chattel property by state law, incapable of entering civil contracts, including the bond of marriage. I'm sorry, this is just one beautiful painting of a black recruit. <clears throat> a couple of black soldiers. This is, these are the people the policy had in mind. But this is a slave family. Three generations of a slave family on a South Carolina plantation taken in 1862. These families are real, but they have no legal standing. And not every woman comes in a three-generational family. And not every woman even comes with a custom, a husband by law or custom. None by law, some by custom. So this is the problem. If the slave soldier was a problem for Democrats, and he was, they didn't want any, they didn't think the Union should have any uh, slave black soldiers, then the black soldier's wife raised the murkiest issue of legal right and congressional power. The problem was obvious, and it was soon pointed out, uh, revealingly enough, by a sympathetic Republican senator. Quote, I am constrained to say, whether it is to the honor or dishonor of my country, Senator Colomer of Vermont said, that in the land of slavery, no male slave has a child, no slave has a wife, marriage being repudiated in the slave system. He thought it wrong, he thought it unchristian, but still it was true. Quote, I have simply to say that these people have no wives, they have no children, and the provision of this amendment is to all practical purposes a dead letter. Colomer's point hung over the subsequent debate and indeed over the entire history of emancipation. In fact, reading this debate, I ask myself, did these guys ever have any intent of implementing this policy? As the bill narrowed to embrace only slaves owned by rebels, they cut off the loyal men, senators fought over the implications for the slave man's dependence, as they put it. What if black soldiers' wives, unlike their husbands, were owned by loyal men? This is a paper law, Senator Browning of Illinois stormed. 
It is the army that will free these people and not Congress. The government has no right to legislate in regard to them at all. But black soldiers had their champions, not least Senator Lane of Kansas. What would freedom be worth to you, he said to Browning, if your mother and your wife and your children were slaves? And he offered an impassioned speech uh, image of a scarred warrior in Washington City, as they called the capital in those days after the war, and a government attempting to restore his loved ones to slavery. Loyal men, he said, could be compensated for the loss of his slave, just as the senator and I could for the loss of our horses or mules or wagons. Senators Lane and King thus fought hard for the recognition of soldiers' wives and their share of the soldiers' bounty of freedom. But the strangely cacophonous mix of terms, of humanity and endearment on the one hand, and property and value on the other, rang in the Senate chamber like an ill omen. Beloved wives and children, but also property like horses and mules. To some senators, it seemed all highly improper, nowhere more so than in a weird discussion about compensation, for um, compensation to owners for slave men and women that were confiscated by the government. The Senate should not engage in this traffic, Senator Pomeroy declared. I do not propose to embark this government in the enterprise of buying up slaves. Anyway, he added, we can't afford it. So there's a sort of highbrow version and a lowbrow version going on at exactly the same time. As the debate dragged on and the amendments were voted on, the purview of the act narrowed with incredible consequences for the slaves themselves. In the end, the Militia Act authorized the enlistment and emancipation only of slaves, men owned by rebels. It retained the provision that extended to soldiers' wives, provided they too were owned by rebel men. Unless there be any confusion, they spelled it out. And so the law says this, provided that the mother, wife, and children of any such man or boy of African descent shall not be made free by operation of this act, except where such mother, wife, and children owe service or labor to some person who during the present rebellion has borne arms against the United States or adhered to its enemies. If you read the Militia Act, it's virtually impossible to understand actually what it's saying, but this is an extra provision that's tagged on at the end in case the slave soldier belongs to a rebel owner and his wife belongs to a loyal man. And they wanted to clarify that they were not freeing any slaves of loyal men. And as it turned out, that clause had brutal implications for the enslaved wives of black soldiers owned by loyal men, some of whom were left until 1865 with no route to claim, uh, to claim freedom. Congressional action in the summer of 62 was clearly rife with opportunity and danger both for slave women who might try the only route to emancipation, the marital route, that was opened to them. And Senator Browning's point remains. Was this a paper law as he charged? Much of what the authors of these acts meant or intended about family emancipation remains obscure. And the lack of interest by historians in the literature has not helped matters either. It is not clear, for example, with respect to the Militia Act or any other piece of federal policy with similar provisions, whether marriage was required as a condition of slave women's freedom or what would constitute evidence of marriage to a soldier in the absence of a legal certificate. 
Much of this remains to be figured out. And if you think about the millions of books that have been written on this, you might wonder, as I think Judy and I do every time we teach this stuff, why has nobody written about this? But what was clear, however, is that at least as soldiers, as officers saw it, women's freedom followed, although which women no one quite said, as it so often had before, from the military service as it was always put of their men. So if slaves put themselves on the wartime political agenda, as we now commonly acknowledge, then the women slaves who kept on coming into union lines, unbidden, unwelcome, and unmarried, did so in direct contravention of a federal policy that construed them as a problem and a burden, at best as dependents of the slave men whose military service the army sought. <clears throat> The military route to emancipation has carried tremendous political and interpretive weight, and the Militia Act was just the beginning. With the Emancipation Proclamation, the Union military generated plans for the systematic recruitment of black soldiers, and nowhere did this policy work with more effect than in the Mississippi Valley, which was entirely in Union hands after the fall of Vicksburg in the summer of 63. Massive numbers of slaves remained on plantations abandoned by their masters, including, to my delight, Jefferson Davis. The numbers of men, women, and children in contraband camps swelled, and military recruiters went to work with a vengeance. In Mississippi, which unlike southern Louisiana, was not exempt from the Emancipation Proclamation, Adjutant General Lorenzo Thomas was dispatched from Washington to head up a huge campaign to recruit black soldiers and to reorganize the constantly growing number of plantations in occupied territory. Plans proceeded in tandem, with Thomas and his men aggressively routing black men of military age into the army, while assigning men, women, and children, and the elderly or unfit men to plantation labor under northern lessees. In other words, they leased out the plantations to Yankees, and they sent the women and children uh, and elderly men back to the plantations. The similarity of that federal policy to the one of Sontenac's Toussaint and Dessalines more than 50 years before in Haiti is frankly unnerving. The scale of the recruitment was huge and Freedmen's consent often irrelevant. Thomas and his men would visit abandoned plantations announcing the Emancipation Proclamation and ordering all young men 18 to 45 to march out with the army. They sent raiding parties into Confederate-held territories taking all the male slaves they could get their hands on. Whatever the circumstances, slaves were all subject to the same military process of sorting. Men of military age siphoned to the army, women, children, and the elderly to the plantations. Mary Jane Clear stuck close to her husband when Union troops recruited him off their Washington County plantation, but she didn't get very far. Quote, all the women were put off the boat at Hawes Landing uh, an army friend of her husband later recalled, and the men were carried off to Lake Providence to enlist. Clear was immediately hired out to a lessee and remanded to a plantation and labor at a wage fixed by the government, $7 a month for the women, $10 for the men. In one three-month period in 1864, the superintendent of freedmen sent 12,000 freed people, the majority of them women, from contraband camps and shanty towns around Vicksburg to work on the plantations. President Lincoln himself articulated the difference gender made 
among people ostensibly and equally free by the terms of the Emancipation Proclamation. It isn't a good sign that notwithstanding the proclamation, he persisted in referring to the freed people as contraband, as if they were still property, and in making rigid distinctions between those capable of military service and those of, quote, no public use to the government, who presented a massive problem of dependency. And this is Lincoln, quote, the able-bodied male contraband are already in the army, he advised the Secretary of, the war, of war, but the rest are in confusion and destitution. They had better be set to digging their subsistence out of the ground. And so they were. It was back to the plantation. It was in the Mississippi Valley that the problem of contraband women, first glimpsed at Fort Monroe, was confronted en masse. But with military recruitment came new and harder gender distinctions between fugitive slave men and women attempting to secure freedom by sticking close to the U.S. Army. As in Saint-Domingue, women didn't simply submit to the official gender division of labor. In the South Carolina and Georgia Sea Islands, field women on one plantation resisted the forcible drafting of the men, attacking the recruiters, the black soldiers sent to recruit them with their hoes, and the women were fired upon. In the Mississippi Valley, women remanded to plantations often refused to work the cotton crops or simply got up and left, following their husbands and other family members to union camps, contraband camps, or the freedmen's villages that cropped up wherever the Union Army and black soldiers made camp. But despite women's resistance, the gender outlines of the policy were clear. 17,000 soldiers were recruited in Mississippi between 1862 and the end of the war, only Louisiana and Tennessee raised more troops. But still, if you think about it, those black soldiers were a small part or proportion of the black population, which means that many more freed people and all of the women made the transition to freedom, not as soldiers of the Republic, but as laborers on union-held plantations or as unwelcome dependents in contraband camps and freedmen's villages clinging desperately to the authority and protection of the Union Army. What the experience of freed people in the Mississippi Valley makes clear is that even when slave women had the same access to legal emancipation as men, which, at, which allegedly they did by the terms of the Emancipation Proclamation, it doesn't use any gender language. Even when that's the case, federal policies, and especially the focus on recruiting black men into the army, established fundamentally different conditions on men's and women's attempts to hold on, to claim and hold on to a status as free people. So when Lorenzo Thomas, the recruiter, <coughs> cast the American Civil War as a black revolution in the Haitian mold, he meant to invoke the obvious comparison with Haiti in the government's willingness to link emancipation and black enlistment as a way to secure black men's loyalty to the Union government. But his policies also fit the other comparison the relegation of freed women to enforced plantation labor, and the reliance on marriage to structure federal policies governing the transition of, slave, uh, of black men and women to freedom. And this is a sketch of a meat held in Louisiana where he gave a speech on marriage and the obligations of soldiers and black men to officially and legally marry and support their wives. Um, <clears throat> Yet it was clear that federal officials, including Thomas, did just that, turning to marriage again and again to regulate the government's relations to and obligations to the massive population of freed people under their administration. 
So when Thomas went down to Goodrich's Landing in southern Louisiana in 1863 to address a mixed group of freed people, welfare and the specter of dependency were foremost in his mind. And like many others confronted with the same problem, he urged marriage on the freed people as an integral part of the social contract they were making with their government. When he did take up black soldiers' complaints about the conditions of their wives and the federal government's obligation to support their dependents, he did so out of a concern to secure the men's loyalty to the government. Women's loyalty, as usual, was of no concern to the state. What issued from federal officials in the Mississippi Valley for the remainder of the war were intermittent, intermittent injunctions to black soldiers to legalize their marriages and a blizzard of directives extending access, rights, and benefits to particular women as the wives of black soldiers. Here, too, marriage and monogamy were official policy, although its workings were constantly thwarted by the complex forms black families and households had assumed under slavery, and which they still had in 1863, 64, and 65. So if some black men and women simply followed orders and got married again legally uh, by the Union chaplain or under the flag, so to speak, many others did not or would not. Women not recognized as wives but trying to reach male family members were repeatedly driven out of Union army camps, denied rations and benefits, and left in destitution. If the Union model was that black soldiers would extend the benefits of loyalty, service, and citizenship to their wives, <coughs> this model proved both a bad fit and a very partial solution for the huge population of women struggling to secure their freedom during the American Civil War. The problem of war, gender, and emancipation, the nexus of issues that everywhere proceeds from military emancipation policies was posed nowhere with more clarity than in the Union border states, those four slave states in the Upper South, which had stuck with the Union in 61 and so were exempt from the Emancipation Proclamation. In those states, the only route to emancipation was military service, and it wasn't until October 63 that the federal government began allowing the recruitment of uh, slave men owned by loyal uh, Union men. But in Kentucky, where loyal slave owners regarded emancipation as a betrayal of their political trust and where they fought it to the bitter end, slavery was legal until December 1865, when the 13th Amendment became official, and slave men were not recruited into the army until the spring of 64. With enlistment the only way to secure the title of freedman, it's little wonder that that state contributed more men proportionally than any other to the army. In Kentucky, the quid pro quo of enlistment and emancipation reached its purest form. For those, men and women both, unable to offer military service, there was simply no way to claim freedom. And for those who could claim no particular tie to black soldiers, that would remain the case until the individual states enacted emancipation um, in, in December, Louisiana, in December 64, Louisiana did, in January 65, a few other states, but in Kentucky, there was no freedom until December 1865. In the Union border states then, and especially Kentucky, even the usual recourse to marriage as a way to secure black men's loyalty and military service was slow to take effect. About the wives, elderly parents, and children of all of those border state recruits left out of the Militia Act and the Emancipation Proclamation, that is to say those women owned by loyal owners, 
uh, the general orders, enlistment orders, said nothing. As late as March 1865 in Kentucky, women whose spouses had enlisted in the Union Army still had no legal claim to freedom, no route by which to exit slavery, none until Congress adopted a joint resolution uh, uh, liberating the wives and children of black soldiers, regardless of their owner's loyalty. And one of the most interesting things is that even as Lincoln, as we now all know, thanks to Steven Spielberg, was um, you know, basically buying votes and, and making sure the 13th Amendment got through, Congress was in a parallel um, debate passing an, a, 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 an enlistment act specifically to free the wives of black soldiers in the border states. So until March 1865, women could be married to black soldiers and be held in slavery. <clears throat> uh, so until the ratification of the 13th Amendment, military enlistment was the only means to freedom for slaves in Kentucky. And there, slave men came to freedom, if they did, by military service. Slave women, if they did, by marriage, if they had the patience to wait, if they could survive their master's retribution, and if, presumably, they could prove marriage to a soldier and get officials to recognize that marriage as legitimate. A lot of ifs. That any women managed to do this is remarkable, but they did. And in the archives, dim traces of their story remains. The soldier's wife was not just a fictional character summoned up for convenience in federal policy. She was Anne, who wrote, quote, to my dear husband in January 1864, to tell him of the abuse and neglect she suffered since he left, to tell him that our child cries for you, but also to strengthen his resolve for the fight. Do the best you can, she said, and don't fret for me. It won't be long before I will be free, and then all we make will be ours. When Anne's husband left for the Union Army, when he became a black soldier, she became a soldier's wife, though still a slave and there were over 50,000 like her in Kentucky alone. The tale of the black soldier's wife rivets attention still. The women told their story in letters and petitions written in tones of sorrow, desperation, anger, and hope while the war raged about them and they tried to survive it. And they also told it in testimonies and applications before government investigations, commissions, and the Pension Bureau long after it was over. The women told their stories for a reason, almost always to try to force the government to, liver, to deliver on the promises made in those paper policies. In the winter of 64-65, the stories the women insisted be heard commanded attention in Congress and propelled that Enlistment Act that emancipated them, the last major piece of military emancipation um, policy. Called into being by the Militia Act of 62, Black soldiers' wives moved to make that identity real, to inhabit it, and to claim the protections and entitlements, none more valuable than freedom itself, the law and their husband's service ostensibly provided. Had the authors of that act ever intended to implement it? Well, now the women insisted that they do. The first struggle for soldiers' wives, as the original debate predicted, was for recognition of the legitimacy of their marriages. And in this, the women were backed up by their husbands, who waged their own campaign for recognition of their family relations by the government they served at arms. Once enlisted, black soldiers corralled white officers to enforce the provisions of the Emancipation Proclamation, gathering up, often at gunpoint, their wives and children and their brothers' wives and children as their units marched. 
and I've read many uh, incredibly dramatic discussions of white soldiers showing up on Virginia plantations with black soldiers along, pointing out, that's my brother's wife, that's my brother's children, and the white soldiers waving the Emancipation Proclamation and literally taking them into um, custody. Uh, these soldiers threatened, and in some cases engaged in mutiny, when as was so often the case, the government's promises to their wives of rations, of pay, were not honored, and when the sacredness of the family relations was disrespected by their officers. And one of the things we are now learning is that the rate of court-martial of black soldiers was much higher than it was of white soldiers. And this is a very rare photograph of the uh, court-martial and execution of a black soldier. But the women also pressed their own case on the government, seizing the opening their policies provided. In constant appeals in person and in writing, they demanded official recognition as soldiers' wives and attempted to claim the benefits due them. They produced themselves and their bodies as evidence of abuse. The wife of a colored recruit came into my office tonight and says she has been severely beaten and driven from her home by her master and owner. She brought one older child with her to camp but left two younger ones at home. Quote, she desires to be sent forward with her husband, Captain Davis reported to a superior officer, adding, this is but one of dozens of similar applications of like character. And indeed, women suffered and documented the, the retribution they suffered as the wives of black soldiers. R.L. Moore says he will kill every woman that he knows that has got a husband in the army, one woman wrote. The master's violent authority was local, the union's protective authority often too far away. But the women were soldiers' wives, and they demanded that the army recognize them and protect and support them. Quote, I am the wife of Nathan Johnson, a soldier in Company F, 116th U.S. Colored Infantry. Frances jo Johnson swore in her affidavit in Kentucky in March 65, quote, I was brutally beaten by my master the day after my husband enlisted. She ran away to Camp Nelson where she swore out the affidavit. My children, she said emphatically, are still held. She made sure they knew that. Ann Summer simply wrote a note to General Benjamin Butler in command at Portsmouth, Virginia, referring to an official order promising rations to quote all the soldiers' wives of color and demanding hers from the quartermaster's department. Like the poor white women in the Confederate States of America, black women grasped hold of the lever provided by wartime policy to press their claims of recognition and entitlement on their government. For black women in the South, that was never easy. And this was not simply a struggle for black soldier's wife in the South. Uh, it was also uh, an incredible struggle uh, for black soldier's wives in the northern states, brought valuably to light by Judy Giesberg in her wonderful new book, Army at Home. But there were many more black soldier's wives in the South. And even as those wives reported the abuse at the hands of their owners, loyal men, and as their husbands attempted to use the power of the army to liberate them, some white officers greeted their efforts with contempt. The contradictions of slavery flagged in the congressional debate. Is there such a thing as a slave wife? And how would we know her? These were not abstract questions. Five Negro soldiers visited a plantation of Mr. Villery, a Captain Davis reported in, to his commanding officer in Louisiana in 1863, quote, loaded their muskets in front of his door and demanded some colored women, quote, whom they called their wives. The quotation marks were still there. 
The kind of contempt he expressed for the women's claims was commonplace in the Union Army, and it dogged them at every turn during and after the war, as did all the actual complexities of their marital and family relations as slaves. They were thrown out of camp as prostitutes when they showed up on payday to get their husbands' wages. Quote, it is just within the bounds of possibility, one commander acknowledged, that some virtuous wives may have been amongst the number it kicked out of camp, but I gravely doubt it. And they were removed from camp as, quote, lazy vagrants, where they had gone to get the rations due them from their husbands, as the officer, I'm sorry, from the men, as the officers revealingly put it, quote, who claim them as their wives. Black soldiers lodged complaint after complaint, risking disciplinary action. Quote, one man wrote a powerful complaint. He said, quote, men's wives comes here hundreds of miles to see them, and he, the officer, will not allow them to come into the lines. George Hannon, the soldier, informed General uh, Lorenzo Thomas, every officer here that has a wife is got her in camp, he said. A colored man think just as much of his wife as a, a white man does of his. We volunteered and came in the service to protect this government and to be protected ourselves. But Colonel Luster is treating us, it don't seem, he thinks we are human. The history of marital nonconformity imposed by slavery and built into the diverse structure of African-American family life under the conditions of slavery and the slave trade made black women more recognizable to whites as vagrants or prostitutes than as soldiers' wives. The register of marriages kept at Vigsburg illustrates the dilemma enslaved people faced in trying to conform to government policy. Along with the usual categories that you would see in a marriage register, uh, place of residence, name, etc., there were also some very strange columns listed, one titled, lived with another woman, number of years, question mark, separated by, question mark, number of children by previous connection, question mark. All of this, really what this is, is the horrors of the slave trade converted into government categories. Under separated by, the common answer entered was force, although a few women entered the uh, term choice as well under reason. The reality of slave men's and women's lives under slavery and war were a minefield for those seeking official recognition as somebody's wife. Black families are in condition, quote, totally unlike white soldiers' families, one white officer protested to an assistant commissioner of the Freedmen's Bureau in 1865. And if they were like white soldiers' families, he said sarcastically, then your bureau was a useless encumbrance and should be shut up. In other words, they're trying to make white families conform to the same pattern as black families, even as they have a special bureau to issue people out of slavery into freedom um, uh, because they had lived 300 years in slavery. Notwithstanding the difficulties, the federal government would cling to marriage as a cornerstone of emancipation policy. Doesn't this image um, strangely remind you of that famous French image of post-World War II with the soldier? I mean, it's, it's really, but this is, this is what freedom is supposed to look like. This is what the end of the war is supposed to look like. Every woman has a husband, every child has a daddy. But slavery had made sure that that wasn't going to be the case. The Freedmen's Bureau, I'm sorry, so 
The federal government clung to a marriage as a cornerstone of emancipation policy. The Freedmen's Bureau had a formal, quote, superintendent of marriages, and they would insist on casting women as wives, uh, and I'm sorry, their insistence on casting women as wives would shape the definition of freedom and citizenship well into the post-war period. Soldiers' wives would continue to fight for recognition and their husbands to ensure the support and protection allegedly due the wives of the nation's veterans. It was a brutally unequal fight, but it was not without its victories. It is surely worth remembering that almost everything historians know about slave marriage and family life comes from the voluminous set of pension records housed in the National Archives, a repository of freedom that leads back through the bloody terrain of slavery and war. You can tell the tale of the soldier's wife, and you can value it as one way to recover the, the hidden history of gender and emancipation. But like that of the black soldier, we would do well to put her story in context. The power of the heroic narrative of black soldiers and the struggle for freedom is difficult to, to gainsay. But that, I would argue, makes it all the more important to recognize that much of what constituted federal emancipation policy during the American Civil War was specifically military policies, and as such carried a weight of assumptions about the differential capacities of men and women, of slave men and women, about their abilities to support and advance the goals of the state, and about the role and status that would have to be extended to them as citizens of that state. To put it bluntly, slave women's loyalty simply never mattered and, or assumed the strategic significance men's loyalty did. Uh, <clears throat> and like that of all other women in the United States, slave women would pay a high price for that. In 1862 and 63, when the issue was engaged, and indeed for a long time after, Women's exclusion from the highest obligation of the American citizen to provide military service in defense of the state told decisively in estimations of their value and of their civil and political rights. Itself tied up with marriage and the rights of husbands to the labor and service of their wives, that exclusion fundamentally shaped slave women's relationship to the Union state in the Civil War and shaped the conditions and severely constrained the options open to them as they struggled to lay claim to the status of free people. Military emancipations and the policies they engendered powerfully shaped the terms of emancipation for slave women in the United States, as they had in other places where enslaved men and women also made the treacherous passage through war to freedom. In the US South, one thing it meant is that women would make the historic transition without ever gaining the human right of self-possession defined by liberals everywhere and long promoted by abolitionists as the elemental difference between slavery and freedom. Thank you.
Let me know if you can you hear me. Yeah. So is is there um thank you for this really interesting Is there an analogy um, in your view to be drawn that's um, useful between the kind of twinning of citizenship and the institution of marriage in this historical moment and the kind of contentious um, issue of uh, marriage uh, in our moment now. Um, and you know what we're hearing about increasingly as the, um, I'm thinking of like the conservative case for gay marriage and so on, the sense that um, marriage might stand sort of culturally or within a national culture as a kind of um, guarantor of certain assumptions um, that make citizenship, full citizenship, seem possible. I just wonder if that analogy kept occurring to me during your talk, and I wonder if you've thought of it and what, and what you might have to say. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question and a, and a difficult problem. I think that the first thing you have to sort of grasp hold of, which we have now, I think, not because of this, because of history, but because of the gay marriage debate, is that we've been forced to recognize how central, in this country, conservatives cast the family and marriage as a matter of, of, of privacy, that they want it to be, uh, you know, that, that, that there's supposed to be a realm of privacy uh, for the family. But the problem really is, and they're the, for the, they exemplify the issue, is that marriage is central to state policy. I mean, the government has had a, a pro-marriage policy. Uh, the United States people marry and marry and marry. They get divorced, they marry, they get divorced, they marry. I mean, they have, we have a marriage rate that's off the charts compared to any other Western country. And there's not really any other model here for a committed relationship except marriage, and that's not an accident. And it's not an accident that gay couples move into that, that's where legitimacy resides. Like these people trying to occupy a zone of legitimacy to claim standing with the government, to be recognized by it. And it has long been connected to male citizenship. And women's citizenship um, was really kind of irrelevant. It really didn't have any, it was, it was evacuated of meaning. Uh, they were administered through their husbands. And the whole idea was that women, the state doesn't want to deal with women as individuals. It wants to deal with men as the heads of household and tax policy, immigration policy, you name it. I mean, this country is still one of the few countries in uh, the West where you can't live with someone for a long period of time in something called common law marriage and get them a visa, an immigration visa. You still can't do that in the United States. Um, as I discovered. So this is, I mean, it, it, there, it, it works through many, many parts of federal policy. Tax policy, April 15th, you will remember when you check your box, but it's also immigration policy um, and many other things. So I think that the move to gay marriage and to legitimize gay marriage is really understandable within that context, but it also throws off the patriarchal logic of it because there's always only supposed to be one male um, that is connected to the government in that way. And I have to be honest that I, I feel that the um, problem with this particular moment is that we should be challenging the, the kind of space that feminists wanted in the 60s and 70s for different family forms that might leave human beings more room to negotiate what the nature of that relationship, it's gone. Now marriage is like you've never heard so much talk about marriage in your life. So there is no space left. 
Um, we, it's important to gain the space of marriage and the legitimacy of marriage for gay people who cho choose marriage, but one of the consequences of this is we have legitimized marriage as the only real way to be committed couples in this country and to have the government recognize and support that family form. There, 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 it's, it's like um, all marriage all the time. And it's, as a historian and as a feminist, you can't help but see it through this long history, which has been so deeply problematic for women. It really, um, I mean, to the point where in the, still in the middle of the 20th century, when women were still fighting under Ginsburg's, uh, uh, um, when she was a, a, I guess, what was it, a 14th Amendment uh, rights lawyer um, uh, on the Supreme Court, women were still being refused um, not the right, but the obligation to serve on juries on the grounds that they were needed at home. So their obligation as wife always trumped their obligation as citizen. And um, I think this goes back to the question of military service. <coughs> yes. I thank you, first of all. I find it so, so interesting that these men and women, even after emancipation, still weren't referred to as persons even by the person that quote-unquote emancipated them. Mm -hmm. That is just, I don't understand that. But do you think that the marginalization of women, even more so, is more based on race, gender, or does it come down to the intersectionality? Well, that's what we spend, you know, what are all of our lives trying to figure out. And I think, you know, um, there's no doubt that it's not the same. What black women in this period deal with and what white women of whatever class deal with is, is completely different, but it's related. The government's anxiety about emancipation was partly that these aren't regular families and they don't exactly know what shape they're going to have after they're all free. And what they're terrified of is a huge dependent population, welfare population. Um, so they want to impose marriage as the form and in that sense they're trying to do to black women what white women, the way this, they're trying to sort of force them into the same relation of subjection to men if you want to put it that way, that white women voluntarily enter through marriage. Um, and in that sense, they're, they're related things. But because there's such a different family history and such a different legal history and social history uh, for slave women, uh, it's a different kind of, um, it, it, you know, those things come together, their experience as slaves and their legal status as slaves. And uh, they're, I mean, at one level, at a purely legal level, and sometimes it's worth just saying this, they are literally, women are not entering into a zone of, of freedom or, or self-possession in the same way that men are. All of this language, it's, it, it applies to women, I'm sorry, it applies to men and then secondhand to women. Um, there's a, a kind of terror of um, individual women sort of standing there looking at the government in a direct relationship with the government. They want to make sure that they're corralled as wives before they're free so that they don't have to deal with this, you know, um, sort of self-actuated population. 
So in a, in a really literal sense, they are ushering them from the legal jurisdiction of slavery to the legal jurisdiction of coverture of marriage. And in that sense, that's the intersectionality right there. They're trying to move them into the same legal status that all white women are in, um, but they can't, they can't pull it off. Black, I mean, this paper was already too long, but it could be much longer because if just to look at slave wives is one thing, but what about the vast, vast majority of women who don't fit that category at all, who can't even try to be recognized as a soldier's wife? You know, there's many, many more. The other side of this, I, in some ways the more problematic side, is the assumption that everybody is a wife or what? Or they don't, they don't have any rights. Which, you know, is partly about support, um, but it's not only about support. Yes? Is there a benefit in the transition to after the war and after the first for the soldiers' lives to be better treated as a transition of the freedmen's world? Did they have an advantage over other slave women and families that didn't have a husband or a brother or someone who served in the war? I think so. I think so for the reason that I was trying to indicate at the end, which is that while we could go on from today until tomorrow listing the abuses and um, uh, sort of denial of what they were entitled to, you, do, you don't want to go too far with that, partly because women don't just lie down and get run over, uh, they fight back, but also because um, they, uh, we have huge collections in the National Archives that are there exactly because these women force the government to deliver, um, like so for example, one of the ways we know what slaves regarded as evidence of a marriage within their own community is because they explained it in depositions to the Pension Bureau when they were trying to get a deceased husband's uh, pension, his benefits from the government. So there's no doubt about the fact that um, they, um, you know, you can see in the federal records you can see both sides. Black soldiers are enlisted late, right? They're not enlisted till 63 at the earliest. So when the war's over, their term of enlistment isn't up. So white soldiers go home and black soldiers don't. That's a terrible problem for their family members. Uh, and often they're um, deployed really far away, Texas and other places where they're fighting Native American wars. And the letters uh, in the federal records are incredibly poignant about this, that they're being forced to Texas and they're being forced to leave their wives and children behind and they don't trust the government. And also the government is trying to withdraw rations at exactly this moment. So, um, so you can see both sides of this, you know, that they're, that they're struggling to, to secure for their wives what they're supposed to get. Um, but the very fact that they're supposed to get it is the answer also to your question. They're supposed to get something different than other women and they can try to get it. And also, I would also say another thing, which is they have white allies within the army. I mean, Lorenzo Thomas is no um, saint, but Lorenzo Thomas is recruiting black soldiers, and he constantly presses uh, his superiors to do what they're supposed to do for the men's wives. And he does it purely um, instrumentally. He says, how am I supposed to enlist anybody if you don't deliver what you're supposed to deliver? So they do have allies within the Union Army. Yes? Is there a notable difference in like, the transition 
It's a great question, and I have no, I've, I've never tried to think it through, and I also am not sure how I would. Judy, could you imagine how? Children just show up as children. Although, as you saw, one of the things that stunned me when I started looking for this photographic evidence is how many teenage boys were in the orbit of the Union Army. So I suspect that that would be one way to look at this is um, to try to see, are they enlisting underage boys? Are they keeping them in the camps to provide manual labor or military labor? Um, so a lot of children, I mean, sons and daughters is another term that would require careful construction because there's a lot of children separated from their original birth families who are trying to survive this process on their own. Um, but that's a tough one. This paper, like when I first got onto this problem, it was just bothering me that the literature didn't address it. Like they would, people would just cite the Militia Act and they'd never even notice that they were saying, oh, and the, and the wives. And I'm thinking to myself, well, did they ever really do anything about that or what did it really mean? So initially I just wanted to trace the pattern in the policies. And then I started to get interested in, you know, what does it mean in real life? And um, that particular question about children, I think is an important one, but it would be hard to pursue through this kind of evidence. You'd have to probably go into, I don't know where, Judy. Um, so, some work is being done now because some ch there, there are a, a lot of children, who, underage kids who do enlist, wind up getting court-martialed for things like falling asleep uh -huh. on guard, you know, you know stuff that a teenager, stuff. right, yeah, like, you, like you've never seen a teenager fall asleep, right, when he's supposed to be awake. I've never seen that. <laughs> uh, but, so, there are, so, so kids are showing up. One of the ways that some people are starting to look at the experience of children, child soldiers is when when I try to find do this sort of history of women and gender in federal records or military records or whatever these are very inhospitable records for feminists I mean ostensibly actually when you get in there there's a ton of stuff that nobody's ever used but the first thing you have to do is diagnose the archives what were they looking for what are they collecting what's in there and then you start to like for example you know uh, for ages was very hard to do anything on slave women and the Civil War because they didn't show up in federal records. When I was writing my book, I thought to myself, well, um, they're, they're almost invisible in military records, uh, but they're not invisible in plantation records. The Army might be uninterested in what slave women want or what uh, insurrection they're capable of, but planters are very aware. And so it partly you have to, when you decide what you want to know, you have to figure out where you likely to find that. You're not going to find it some things you're not going to find in military records or federal records. And that has been part of the problem is that the Union Army left and the Union government left one of the biggest, richest collections of emancipation papers, the biggest of any government in, in, the, in the world. But huge as it is, and you could live four lifetimes and never get through these papers, it's still about some things and not about others. And as a historian and especially a feminist historian, you have to think very strategically about you know, they're writing about men nonstop, not because men are the only one who are rebelling, but because they want them in the army. They don't see women because they don't have any instrumental use of women. They're of no public use. And the same thing would happen with children. You'd have to figure out how to go about it. Maybe we could have one more question. Well, I, I, the question that I had was, 
sure that you would really have an answer for this. Um, I was thinking about what I know about, let's say, South Carolina slavery and the particularities of places where there's urban versions of slavery. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering about, let's say, wives who were in those kinds of situations where there might be more opportunities for them to support themselves in other ways, like slaves who hired their time out, right? And so I was just, I was thinking about that, and if you had anything to say about that. I don't really know where my question is. I'm just, I was just trying to think about, you know, because slavery is not One kind thing. of, exactly, monolithic yeah, kind of experience, yeah. that I was thinking about that. And then the other thing, and this is kind of, um, this is sort of purely personal. I've been working through the various um, episodes of Ken Burns' documentary on the Civil War. And I was struck by the, I don't, I don't remember if it was rebel soldiers or Union soldiers who took their families with them to war. Yeah. And I wondered about these um, black soldiers. So would there have then been, let's say within the camps, would there have been kind of racial tensions? And, and again, I don't know that you can answer that. Well, the second one is, is the easiest one to answer because in fact, um, black women are trying to follow the army for a whole variety of reasons, not just because they have husbands in the army, but because the Emancipation Proclamation is only as good as the military's ability to enforce it. And there's a lot of reversals in war. Some territory is free you know, in Union control and then there's a reversal and the slaves do not want to be stuck when the Union Army pulls out and the Confederates move back in. So they're hustling. To, I mean, Sherman has this huge group of African-Americans following his army. Some of those are women who are trying to stay close to their husbands and get their pay. But a lot of them are just people who are trying to stay in this sort of cone of the Union Army because basically the Emancipation Proclamation is moving as they move and they don't want to be left outside that zone of protection. And um, so they're on the outskirts of camps and all the time they're always trying to set up camp near where the soldiers are in camp. But what you say is literally true. Like white officers especially will bring their wives to camp. Like who was it who was the drinker, Grant? He had to bring, they, they would send his wife down. You know, if he was getting a little, they'd send his wife down, you know, go, t time for Mrs. Grant to go make a visit to camp. And you see these pictures, you know, it's the beginning of photographic technology and you see these pictures of families set up in front of officers' tents. And in fact, that's what one of those black soldiers I was recruiting was complaining, quoted, was complaining about. They're kicking our wives out. They're, they're, sometimes they burn freedmen's villages. They, they pull down pontoon bridges behind the army and plunge African-Americans into the water um, because they don't want them following the army. Meanwhile, these guys are carrying along their wives and, ch you know, and children in some cases. So that is absolutely true. And all this language you have to be, I mean, I think this is the feminist's great um, uh, weapon is that when we wormed our way into various literatures, we did it in part by paying attention to the gendered uh, character of language. And it's very helpful in these cases too because they're always using terms like contraband when they're really talking about free people. They talk about so-called wives who claim as their wives. I mean, it's just the skepticism is, is rife. Um, about that. So that one's actually kind of easy. 
the, the other question you ask is fantastic, and um, I, I completely hear you. It has to do with moving beyond this level of policy, which is like history at you know, 10,000 feet, um, and then trying to figure out what, what did it actually look like when it was implemented, when it was struggled over, and so forth. And it's funny that as, we, as I've, I mean, this is something I wrote about five years ago and then revisited. I, it's the one thing of my book that I can't let go of. It has a lot of legs, I think. This, we're, 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 I think we're starting to put richer and richer layers to this, but there's so much work to be done. And one of them is in the direction you're talking about, which is particularity. Like when I look at that picture of Virginia's uh, slaves crossing the Rappahannock River, I immediately think about the difference in the structure of slave families in Virginia and slave families in South Carolina. That beautiful picture of three generations of a slave family, you wouldn't even have to tell me that was South Carolina, I would know that. Because where else do you have three generations on one plantation except in the rice area, whatever. Certainly the kinds of things you're talking about. And I was writing this paper, working on some new parts of it the other day, and it suddenly hit me like out of the blue that Susie King Taylor, whose memoir we've had for years, was a soldier's wife. You know, it never hit me. Like, we, I've used it for a million things, but I really need to go back and reread that. And she's an urban slave. She's from Savannah. Um, she's in um, the Sea Islands. She's, she's in that area that is occupied early and where there's, it's very dense black settlement. Um, so I think that we'll get there and all these things that we know about slavery will have to start to inform our reading of emancipation. I know people who are working on this and I think in a short period of time we'll probably have some stuff a lot better than this, like Thavolia Glimpf and other people who are really treating the Civil War in many ways as a humanitarian crisis. Um, and I think a lot more is going to, um, this is just, this is like, certainly what I was doing is like laying out the broadest kind of level of the problem. And we have to do all of those things you're suggesting is connect it to what we already know about slavery and emancipation in certain places. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu.